This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 365. Think of something you want to do, like some goal. I want to lose a couple pounds. I want to write a book. I want to start a podcast. I want to ask somebody out. I want to get a raise. Write that down and then listen to the first reaction you have. Every reaction is an education. Overthinking isn't a personality trait. It's the sneakiest form of fear. It steals time, creativity, and goals. It's the most expensive, least productive thing companies invest in without even knowing it, and it's an epidemic. Hi. I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, a podcast I launched because I believe that if you want to achieve true success in your business and in your life, intentional and consistent reading is a must. Each week, we're joined by a successful and inspiring author to chat about their latest book and their unique insights on things like personal and professional development, leadership, productivity, career, business, marketing, sales, and entrepreneurship. Today, that special author includes now four-time guest, John Acuff. His brand new book officially out today is called Soundtracks, The Surprising Solution to Overthinking. I'll be asking John to share about the three R's that will change your thoughts from a super problem into a superpower, how to make sure your company's culture is setting you up for success, what his research reveals about who among us suffers from overthinking, and quick hint, it's pretty much all of us, and lots, lots more. If you enjoy reading as much as I do or are trying to work your way to enjoying reading as much as I do, I want to recommend to you my upcoming book called Read to Lead, The Simple Habit That Expands Your Influence and Boosts Your Career. You can pre-order it now, currently only available on Amazon. It'll be available other outlets uh, in a little bit, Uh, but you can pre-order it now. It comes out August 31st. Just go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash book, and that will take you directly to the book's entry on Amazon, or you can go to Amazon. Amazon.com and simply search Read to Lead. I hope you'll check it out. I'd love for you to pre-order it. It would mean a lot. Again, it's called Read to Lead, the simple habit that expands your influence and boosts your career. And you can get it at readtoleadpodcast.com slash book. John Acuff is the New York Times best-selling author of seven books. He's an Inc. Magazine top 100 leadership speaker and has spoken to hundreds of thousands of people at conferences and companies around the world, including FedEx, Nissan, Microsoft, Lockheed Martin, Chick-fil-A, Nokia, and Comedy Central. His brand new book is called Soundtracks, The Surprising Solution to Overthinking. Well, he's making his uh, fourth visit to read to lead. That means I must like his work, and I can say certainly I do, and that's why I love having him on uh, and love reading his books. John, welcome to the Read to Lead podcast once again. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Jeff. The very important question I want to start with is just pressing question is with your book title, Why All Lowercase Letters on Soundtracks? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. The I'll tell you this. The the design process for that cover was the was just amazing to me. Um, we now, by amazing, this, do you mean excruciating or? <laughs> no, it was awesome. I like. Okay. Usually, a design cover process is you go through fifty, sixty different ideas. That idea that we ended up with was in the first, the very first round of ideas, and I just was like, "What?" And so it couldn't have been better. I yeah. So they could have they could have done anything with the font. I was like, I don't even care. Like you guys killed the cover. <laughs> 
Let's define soundtracks uh, to start with here and, and get that out of the way uh, for context. And, and this idea, uh, concept you assert at the beginning of the book is that we actually can control our thoughts. Yeah. So, I mean, soundtracks is just kind of my metaphor, my phrase to describe a repetitive thought. I've heard people say thoughts are like a leaf on a river. They're like a cloud in the sky, a car on your highway, whatever. For me, it's a soundtrack. It's a, it's a repetitive thought that plays often and it's often in the background of your life. And the fun thing is we do have the permission and the power to change the way we think, which ends up changing the way we act, which ends up changing the results we get. And a quote that stands out to me in the beginning of the book is this this quote that says, one of the greatest mistakes that we make in life is assuming they're all true. All our thoughts are, are, are true. What are some of the questions that we should ask our soundtracks to help determine their usefulness? Yeah. So I tell people, take your loudest soundtracks, not every thought. Who has time to search through every thought? You have millions of <laughs> thoughts a day. I'm saying take the loudest ones. A really easy way to find a loud one is say, like, think of something you want to do, like some goal. I want to lose a couple pounds. I want to write a book. I want to start a podcast. I want to ask somebody out. I want to get a raise. Write that down and then listen to the first reaction you have. Like I say, every reaction is an education. So if you write down, I want to write a book, What's the immediate first thought, the second thought, the big loud thoughts? Mm. And then you ask them three simple questions. Is it true? Is this thought true? Is it helpful in that does it move me forward or pull me back? And is it kind? And if it's not, if you can't answer yes to those three things, it's probably a broken soundtrack that you need to deal with. And when I say deal with, the, the core of the book is really three actions. You retire your broken soundtracks, you replace them with new ones, and you repeat the new ones so often they become as automatic as the old ones. That's the concept. I really, my goal is to put handles on ideas. We have enough ideas in the world. We don't have handles on them to carry with us into our lives, into our next Thursday, into our next business meeting. So I try to put really simple handles on ideas so that there's action associated with what is often a fuzzy topic. Thinking mindset can be a very fuzzy topic. And I want to have real actions you could do. Well, one great example of that in the book that stuck out to me was how you used to talk to your kids before catching a flight to a gig. Can you talk about how you handled that then and, and the change you made? That to me, if you're a business traveler, like that's going to be a page you underline. Um, so <laughs> essentially, when I got a new job, you know, started my own company and became a public speaker, I ended up traveling a lot more. I never used to travel for work. I was a, I was a copywriter um, for companies like Home Depot and Bose and Staples. So there wasn't travel involved. So then all of a sudden, I had all this travel with public speaking and I felt super guilty about it. And so I would say to my kids, you know, I'll be gone for three days. I'll be home in four sleeps, like light a candle in the window. Like, and my <laughs> wife finally pulled me aside one day and said, they don't even know to be sad. You're teaching them to be sad. You're handing them your guilt. Like, we're not mm. saying you should be guilty. That's you. So when you leave, make it a celebration, make it something positive. Because kids, there's this thing called mirror neurons where your kids will mirror the motion you're mm. setting. And so- that changed how I travel. And so kind of the, the soundtrack I have now is I just don't have any room in my suitcase for shame. Like I just don't have any room for it because it ruins the event. It tells your kids, by the way, you should be desperately lonely. Like, and then the other thing it does, like the sneaky thing it does is we spend 18 years telling our kids that work sucks and then we're surprised they don't want to get a job once they graduate from college. <laughs> 
So I would much rather go like, I have an amazing job that occasionally involves some travel. I'm going to go crush it because this job is awesome and I can't believe I get to do it. And I Mm -hmm. hope you have a job that you love this much someday. And I'm going to take lots of time when I'm home. When I'm home, I'm going to be home. When I'm gone, I'm going to be gone. But it's not this terrible thing. And that, you know, Mm -hmm. so many business travelers just do that. And they feel this guilt and they ask their kids to hold it and they put it on their kids and it's just not healthy. Uh, so insightful. Uh, could you have married a smarter wife, you think? I tell you what, I always tell people she's a renaissance woman. She has her undergrad in photojournalism and her master's in construction management. And nobody like nobody goes <laughs> and gets an undergrad in photojournalism and then gets a full ride to Georgia Tech as one of the few women in that program. And so, yeah, she's just, she's amazing. We always talk about, you know, will she ever write a book someday? Will we ever do a podcast together someday? Because I really benefit from having access to her. The times I listen to the things she's encouraged me to do, uh, life goes a lot better. Didn't you do an episode or a YouTube video with her or a podcast? We did. We recently did um, an online challenge called Overcoming Overthinking. Had nearly 10,000 people do it. It was a free Mm. challenge. And she joined me on one of the days to talk about how do you be married to a dreamer? And I I have a podcast now called um, All It Takes Is a Goal. And I I know for certain she's going to be on at least one of the episodes where we talk about Okay, how do we? How do you have a big marriage and and big dreams? Because we get questions about that all the time, and we're by no means marriage experts. Mm-hmm. Um, but in twenty years of marriage, we've made some mistakes and learned a few things. And it's fun to share them. Talk about a technique that you share to help us get jump started. If we're having trouble developing our own soundtracks, we can actually borrow them from other people. What's that look like for for you in practice? Yeah. So I think one of the worst things you can do if you're trying to engage in changing how you think is sit down with a blank piece of paper and say, okay, brain, go. Like, why? That is like, make it a lot easier than that. So when I say borrow from the best, I just want you to start paying attention. So when somebody, you know, when you hear a song lyric that means something to you, when somebody asks you a question that means something to you, when you read in a book, a line that means something to you, write it down be deliberate about it. And so that's what I do. I'll give you you know, an example of one I put in the book, Patsy Claremont, who's a really successful author. Mm. I think she's written 40 books at this point, amazing public speaker. We had lunch one day and I walked away with at least two soundtracks from her. The first was I said, Patsy, how do you best write? Like, how do you best write? And I thought mm. she was going to say in the mornings with a cup of coffee on like <laughs> overlooking a farm. And she said, under obligation. And I loved that because mm. it freed me up to go, oh, that's right. I'm the same. I, I'm, I haven't written 10 books and I'm just waiting for a publisher to publish someday. Hopefully I need a deadline. I need to, you know, a mm. commitment. I need a contract. I, I write under obligation. Awesome. Second thing, she told me her first book when she wrote it, um, the edits came back and they were covered with red ink from the editor. And she mm. said it felt like, the page was dying. So I asked the editor, can you use a different color next time? So the next time the edits came back, she had used a a green pen. And she said, this time, instead of it feeling like it was dying, it felt like I was growing. And I took away, what if the next time you receive feedback, you saw it as growth, not attack Mm. or, you know, progress, not, not, you know, criticism. And so for me, that's what I mean. Soundtracks, whether it's, you know, just do it, whether it's something you like, they're all around us. And then if you'll actually pay attention, you'll see them a lot easier. You know, it's funny you say that with regard to books and red ink. I experienced the electronic version of that with, with all these comments in red everywhere. It's Yeah, it's kind of defeating. I think I'll ask for green next time for sure. Yeah, I mean, it works for Patsy. She's 40 books in, so she's doing mm. something right. But you lay out a, a formula of sorts, I would call it, for momentum 
when it comes to goals. Talk about the process, John, that begins with asking, where do I want to to win this week? Yeah. So what I, what I found that was interesting is that even my most successful high-performing friends, my type A friends who lay out their clothes the night before they go to the gym to make sure they go, don't pick their thoughts. Nobody I talked to goes, I got a big business negotiation next Thursday. I can see that on my schedule. I looked at the next seven days. Where do I want to win? I want to win that conversation. Mm. So what are the three soundtracks I'm going to make sure I have on repeat that are motivating me during that meeting? What are some soundtracks I'm going to leave at home? Oh, I remember I got screwed on a negotiation a year ago and I'm still carrying that bruise. I don't want that one playing in that meeting. Mm. I don't want to have this thought that says they're trying to get your money playing because it's not going to be helpful to the conversation. I'm going to pick that out. So that's what I mean by when you look at your week, seven days out, 10 days out, whatever time frame works best for you. And you say, okay, where do I want to win this week? Like, and it can be as simple as, okay, I'm teaching my youngest daughter how to drive. Like, and that's a stressful situation for both of us. So I know tomorrow I want to win that. I want that to be a pleasant thing. So what are some soundtracks that I could deliberately think, okay, here's what I want to be thinking about when I'm doing that. Mm. I want to remember I used to be 15. Maybe that's it. Maybe my soundtrack is I was 15 too. I was 15 too. Because it's easy as a 45-year-old to be like, I can't believe she doesn't know that that complicated left-hand turn situation. Like, mm. of course she doesn't. And so you think about where you want to win, the soundtracks that are going to help you, and then the actions that are going to make that win actually happen. Now, there's an example in the book that you just reminded me of where you got this contract and it was for a significant um, amount and and you had sort of negative thoughts in your mind leading up to that, that it was a lot of money and they were probably going to say no. But then they said yes and asked for double the work, which was double the money. But then your brain kicked in again, even after all these good things happened. Can you Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. So the day of when I'd find out about the contract, that morning I woke up and my, my feelings were like, hey, we're stressed today. We're going to feel stressed. The soundtrack is stressed. And I was like, oh, because of the big contract? All right. That makes sense. <laughs> so I get the big contract. It works. And I assume the next morning when I wake up, my feelings are going to be like, we did it. We did it. And instead, <laughs> my feelings go, what if you're unable to perform? I mean, it's, it's a lot of money. Like, what if there's a lot of pressure? Like, what if you can't do it? And I was like, wait a second, what? <laughs> so I had to come to a point that when I listen to broken soundtracks or when sometimes my feelings pick the wrong thing, they're always going to pick that. If mm. they put on a stress soundtrack, regardless of the circumstances, that's what I'm going to experience. So I had to stop and say, okay, wait a second. I need to choose what I think. I need to choose what thoughts I have going on in my head and I need to actively do it. That's part of the problem is that it's like anything else. Like when people say, hey, you know, this, this diet's not working for me. And I'll say, well, how long have you done it? And they'll say 10 days. And I'll say, well, how long did it take you to gain the weight? And they'll say 10 years. And I go, mm. okay, you gave yourself 10 years to put on the weight. You're giving yourself 10 days to take it off. <laughs> Same with soundtracks. If you've mm. listened to a broken soundtrack that says you can't write, like, I mean, let's, let's talk about that. 81% of Americans, according to the New York Times, want to write a book. And every year, less than 1% mm. do. 81% say they want to, 1% do. So there's a lot of people that are telling themselves, I can't write a book, I can't write a book, I can't write a book. If you've told yourself that for five years, it's going to take some repetition, take some intentionality to change that soundtrack. And I think we have to be patient with ourselves. Mm. What about uh, within organizations? How, how can we make sure our company culture is, is set up for success? Because culture is basically sort of agreed upon soundtracks, right? Yeah, I think one of the first things you can do as a leader is ask the team what soundtracks they believe the company is listening to. Mm -hmm. um, I, I like to say when you ask somebody, it's, it's essentially asking somebody, okay, well, what do you need? What are the soundtracks that like, 
what are the unwritten ones we have? You know, because every company, yeah, culture is just a collection of soundtracks we've all agreed to listen to. And what I say is like, when you ask somebody what they need, they become visible and valuable. That's what every coworker mm -hmm. wants to know. Do you see me? Do I matter? Do you see me? Do I matter? So even starting the conversation and going, hey, I know what our mission is. I know the values we all have in a drawer on a piece of paper. What are the real soundtracks that that move us forward? And And, you know, getting them to go, I think you find out surprising things, you know, like mm. one of them might be don't, don't show the manager the piece of, you know, work for feedback until the last second. So she doesn't have real time to mess it all up. Like every company develops these little hacks around mm. difficult situations. And I think in, if we don't deal with them, it doesn't mean they're not happening. It just means they're happening quietly. Um, and so I, you know, I always say like, you don't want, you want the boardroom to match the break room. You don't want mm. a boardroom experience that's completely different from a break room experience where everybody kind of has to clap in the boardroom and in the break room, they go, this is terrible. Like, no way is this going to, I'm not going to say anything. Even just saying, uh, you know, one might be, we publicly say, I've got an open door policy. I'm a leader, open door policy. But when you come in, my face says, what are you doing in here? Mm. Why are you bothering me? <laughs> so there's a disconnect between those two soundtracks. You say this, but the real soundtrack is, don't you dare walk through that door. Remember, <laughs> don't you dare bother. Like, don't you, you know? And so you might go, okay, we need to, we need to address that. We need to change that. And then the other thing is after 2020, I think everybody is in a more emotional spot than they were mm. previously at work. I've talked to so many companies. I've probably done 40 virtual events this year. And they're all saying things like, our people are at home and isolated. Um, they're disconnected. Our company culture is kind of falling apart because we're not in the same space. We're getting emails from our staff at 5 a.m. and midnight because they don't have an off switch. We lost our off switch. Mm. We, we had all these natural boundaries that we suddenly got turned off. Like the car ride home was a natural boundary. And I'm not saying a commute is good. Like who likes a commute? But it did serve a purpose. Mm. And so I think that even more now than ever before, we need to have these soundtrack conversations within a company. Mm. Well, what about your experience with discovering Zig Ziglar's affirmations. This is one of my favorite parts of the book. Talk about that and the struggle when you first began reciting them. Yeah. I mean, for me, I'm a pretty sarcastic, jaded person. I'm in, mar <laughs> I, you know, I grew up in marketing. I'm sarcastic. So I'm not, you know, I didn't even really want to study positive affirmations because I'm, I grew up with Seinfeld, Serenity Now and, you know, Saturday Night <laughs> Live. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. Doggone it. People like me. Like, and there's just so much motivational fluff on the internet that just mm kind of fires me up. Like the universe takes care of you. Like the universe doesn't care about John Acuff. Like it's busy being the universe. Very rarely is the universe like, hold on. The stuff like that just drives me bonkers. But what happened was I started talking to all these people that I really respected, that I really looked up to. And when you talk to them off camera, backstage, like in a conversation and you'd say, hey, what do you think about positive affirmations? Like, what do you think about positive mm. thinking? They go, oh, I've got a, I got a pep talk I give myself every afternoon, or I've got some affirmations I read in the morning. I've got some declarations I say, and I was like, okay, I got to go study this. The first thing I did was go look up Zig Ziglar's affirmations because he's kind of, you know, as you know, the, the godfather of a lot of the motivational mm. movement in this country. And I had the chance to have lunch with him years ago. And so I said, all right, I'm going to say these things out in the mirror in the morning, in the mirror at night. And I'm going to feel ridiculous. Like I'm not even doing it. I have to do it in a guest bathroom at our house because my wife is like, I can't be around you when you're doing that. Those affirmations. <laughs> I can't hear that and then um, make out with you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was the line I put in the book. And so, so I started to, and what I found was that when I would do it, when I'd get into situations and start to kind of react, 
it was like my brain just pulled the most recent album from the top of the pile, which mm. was positive, which was Zig Ziglar going, mm. no, I'm honest. I'm trustworthy. I'm sincere. I'm like, and so it pulled it from the top. So then I got curious and said, okay, well, I'm going to talk to, I'm going to interview Tom Ziglar, his son about these affirmations. How long has his dad done them? Mm. And I really tried to like my version of stump the Ziggler. I would be like, <laughs> okay, Tom, but what about, what about like, I kept trying to poke negative holes in this mm. and he had so many good answers and it was such a good conversation. So I put that in the book and then I, I, I took it even further and was like, I'm going to write my own cause I'm a writer. Like that's the mm. fun thing. Like mm. I would tell anybody who reads this book, remix it. Like you, re mm. you're the DJ, like you're the best DJ of your life. You remix it. Take something that works for mine, like change the, change the language, whatever. So I remixed and wrote my own set. And then we had a thousand plus people. We took like, we, mm. it was probably close to 10,000. We took through the exercise. We felt like we got great responses from, I think the number was like 1400 people and said, okay, did it change your productivity? Did it, you know, mm. reading these in the morning and at night, did it change your productivity? Did it change how you felt about self-doubt? What, what happened? And the results were awesome. And I have this PhD researcher named Mike Peasley. Um, I always use his full title. He hates it. Like he's so <laughs> humble. I'm always like, well, Mike Peasley, PhD. Cause if you have a PhD dude, you should ball out. That mm. should be in every email <laughs> signature. Um, and we tested it and it worked and it was super interesting. And so, yeah, I, I was fascinated about that part of the book. And part of the struggle in this, is it not that when you first start reciting these, they're many times currently not true? Yeah, I don't believe them. No, they're yeah. like, I'm well-dressed. <laughs> like what? I'm, I'm saying that in like the same t-shirt I've worn for like four days. Um, so no, and I asked, I asked Tom about that. I was like, is that fake it till you make it? He's like, no, we don't think, the Zigglers don't believe in fake it till you make it. Mm. We believe in tell the truth in advance. Um, and he, he okay. gave me a really good distinction from one of his friends. I think his name is Finn, um, mm. who said, some people will go, I'm in the best shape of my life before they are. And that causes cognitive dissonance because your brain is like, no, you're not. Mm. Like, no, you're not. So instead you say, I'm getting fitter and fitter every day in every way, because that can be true. Mm. So when I say today I'm doing this, it's not me going, I'm the most courageous person in the universe because I'm not, but mm. I'm telling the truth in advance, things that I'm working on that I'm growing into. And that, that makes it a lot easier to believe. In the research you did with Mike, I forget his last name, PhD. <laughs> Tell me his last yeah, name. You can just call him Mike PhD. Mike PhD. Is overthinking a problem that afflicts one gender more than the other, or is it pretty universal? I didn't, I mean, we didn't see that. Like when we, we asked 10,000 people if they struggle with overthinking and 99.5% of people said yes. Mm. So, I mean, if you need a sign that you're supposed to write about a topic when 99.5% <laughs> of people raise their hand for it, you write that, mm. you write that book. So I didn't, we didn't see it on like based on personalities. I, I think there's some people that might be more prone to it. Um, maybe their personality has more, you know, more of an overthinking, like, lean, but it seemed like it was universal across ages, across genders, across personality types. And we didn't find a single person whose problem was that they thought too many kind thoughts about themselves. Like no one said like, my real issue is I overthink what a good mom I am. Like no one, we didn't find a single person who was like, I'm just so tired of thinking compliments. That was not the issue at all. <laughs> well, I want to ask a couple of questions that aren't directly related to the book, John, before I do sure. that, anything else from the book that you want to make sure that we walk away with today? Uh, I just uh, buy it. I mean, I hope that's, I hope you all walk away with that. I hope you walk away with a real sense of, I want to buy this book, hopefully in bulk, hopefully for, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, what's been fun about it. We've had, 
CEOs say, okay, we're buying this for our, you know, for our whole team. We've mm. had um, wives say I'm buying it for my husband, husbands for the wife. So it's been fun to see. Um, I think it's just such a universal topic. And I think that when you change how you think, it really can change what you do, which changes your life. Mm. And so I, I just, I can't wait for people to try some of the techniques. Well, I'd be curious to know, having written seven books, how has the writing process evolved for you? What's different, say, today from back when you were first starting out? The biggest difference is the research. So for me now, what I do, when I have an idea in my office, like that's a great John idea. Like it applies directly to John Acuff's life. But unfortunately, I'm the only John Acuff. So that doesn't make for a great book. Hmm. So now what I do is I come up with a bunch of ideas. I figure out some ideas and then I test them. I have the benefit of having generous readers who will say, yeah, I'll try this thing for a month. Mm. Yeah, I'll fill out a survey. Yeah, I'll give you some feedback. So I, I, you know, I'm able to take thousands of people through the content long before it ever hits the pages of a book. And then I'm able to go, mm. which parts helped you? Which parts didn't? What is your version of this? My version of this was this, but I'm really narrow. I'm one person. What's your version? So then I can say, Soundtracks has 35 stories from real people that aren't me. So mm. it doesn't feel like a memoir, like an, another memoir of John. I'm 45. Like, goodness, <laughs> help me if I write another book that's like, here's another part of John Acuff's life you didn't understand. I'm in the book. I, I like to write from the first person. I like to be mm. in the trenches with the reader. But I also want you to go, wow, Colleen Berry's story in the first chapter where she goes from being a receptionist at a company to the CEO mm is amazing and inspiring. And I'm a, I'm a mom too. And I want to be able to do that. I can't, I can't share that story because it's not my story. So mm. I would say that that's been the biggest change is adding a research layer and real people and real stories before the book hits the market. Because I would say before I didn't have access to that. I didn't have a researcher like Mike Peasley, PhD. I didn't have people that would go along in the ride with me. And now that I do, I think it's changed um, my ability to create a book that's way more accessible to way more people. Uh, same question, but uh, this time on the topic of public speaking, how would you say you've grown there and evolved there and improved there over the years? Um, well, I mean, I, I think the big thing is I look at it as an act of service, not a performance. Mm. Um, so that changes it for me. So, I mean, and that goes all the way down to, you know, long before I've gone to do the event, We've had a phone call where I interview you uh, and I'll say to the event planner, I'm there for 45 minutes. You're there all year. How do I make you look like a rock star? Like not me look like a Like I'm there. I want the CEO to win. I want the audience to win. I want the event planner to win. So cha that's changed it for me. And then also what, what's changed for me is I realized that mm. I have access to 50 of the best classrooms in the world every year. Like I, you know, when I go speak to the team in, at Walmart headquarters, and I get to sit in and talk with them about these ideas. If I'll pay attention, I can bring that idea forward and go, hey, mm. when I talk to FedEx, I can say, well, here's how Walmart's doing their international plan. It's really fascinating. Here's what they're learning. And they can go, oh my gosh. It's so like, so if I'll pay attention to be a student of that, I really, I really get to learn from so many different companies. So for instance, um, you know, like one of the questions I ask in one of my speeches is, who are you doing this difficult job for? Who are you doing this difficult job for? Because I believe resilience is tied to purpose. The bigger your purpose, the bigger your resilience. And so that's a soundtrack question. Again, a soundtrack can be a paragraph, a sentence, you know, a question. So that's a soundtrack question I use to mm. stay connected to resilience and purpose. And so when I do the speech, I can say, I asked a room full of hospital CEOs who they did this for, and they and one woman raised her hand. 
she said, I do this difficult job for the donor walk. Like, because when somebody donates a kidney or an organ, we line the halls, the doctors, mm. the CEOs, the nurses, and we cheers their wheel to the surgery. I do this job for the donor walk. I can go, oh, wow, I'll bring that forward. When I speak at a YMCA event and they say, hey, Judd is an 83-year-old volunteer at the Brentwood YMCA. He volunteers in the skate park. He's never skateboarded in his life, but he loves kids. And a 13-year-old came in one day and said, my parents are getting a divorce and it's my fault. And Judd gets to go, nope, that soundtrack doesn't get to take root. Like, let me tell you the truth. I bring that forward. Um, Ortho, a diagnostics company says, hey, our tagline is because every test is a life. Why do they do that difficult job? Because every test is a life. So hopefully, if I pay attention, the experience that I'm able to create for the next audience is even richer because I'm continually developing it and continually adding it. And then I take a soundtrack that's on my wall right now that says specific is sexy. Specific writing is sexier <laughs> than general writing. Specific speeches are sexier than general speeches. So when I can say, who are you doing this difficult job for? And I have specific real examples from a variety of sources. The hospital CEO is very different from Judd, the 82-year-old retired volunteer at the skate park, who's very different from the ortho tagline, but I can weave them together. And that's what's fun mm -hmm. for me. Wow. You, you mentioned earlier that you've done, I think it was 40 uh, virtual events mm -hmm. uh, so far this year. Uh, we're barely four months into the year. That's pretty impressive. Oh, no, 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 no. 40, 40 cents. The, the world turned terrible. Not oh, 40 this year. Gotcha. Gotcha. I got other stuff to do, man. I got to write books <laughs> and stuff. I don't want to give a false impression of my success either. <laughs> well, I thought that was kind of high for no farther into the year we are. You meant like the last calendar year, basically. Yeah. I mean, like since we decided virtual was the thing we were doing. Yeah. Well, it's still impressive and still a lot for someone who is, is struggling because of the lack of in-person events. And maybe that's an area where they're more comfortable. What advice would you give for someone looking to do more events virtually or otherwise? despite you know writing a New York Times bestselling book or two and just being a great speaker, how can they go about booking some of those events? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the, the thing I'd say is go back to clients you've worked with before. Mm. Like every client, what I found with virtual is that it's a difficult medium for a lot of people. And so um, event planners are less likely to take a risk on someone they've never used before. Mm, and they're more okay. likely to book a speaker they trust and have experience with. See, most of the time with public speaking, you won't get a ton of repeat events because they want to keep the the next event different and fresh. And that's, that's kind of how it works. So they might bring you back in five years, but they're not bringing you back for the exact next event. Mm. Um, but with virtual, what at least in my experience, because it's new, because it's kind of unknown, there's a sense of trust of, well, we had Jill speak at our live event a year ago and she did really well. I bet she can do virtual. So it, I, I would say reach back out to places that you've, you've spoken to before. Um, and then the second thing I'd say is volunteer to do a pop-in. Like if you say mm -hmm. to a team, hey, I'd love to pop into your team meeting for 15 minutes. I got this idea. No, you know, just for free because it's another way to serve people. And it's another way to remind people that you exist that, oh, that's right. <laughs> like, you know, Jill does that. She's really good at that. That's mm -hmm. right. We've got a virtual event coming up. Maybe we should book her for that. Mm, great advice. So what's what's next? Are you going to take some time off? Are you looking forward to the next thing already and, and excited about it? And if so, can you share it? I think the the next thing I really want to lean into the podcast. I'm mm. really enjoying podcasting. Um, I've only you know it started this year, so it's not like it's been around very long. But I'm I'm enjoying learning you know how to grow an audience, how to serve an audience, how to create content that's helpful. 
So that, you know, and I, whenever somebody tells me like that, like they feel like they're a late bloomer, I'm like, yeah, me too. I started a podcast in 2021. Like who does that? <laughs> Who's like, oh my gosh, you guys got to try this new thing called podcasting. Like it's, I think people are going to really like it. Um, so hopefully that's an encouragement to somebody else. Cause I've had people say like, isn't it too late to start something new? Mm. And I'm, I just always think like, no, like it's a great time to start something new. Um, so I'm mm. going to do that. I'm working on the next book kind of figuring out ideas. And mm. so I wouldn't, I'm not too far along in that. I try to write a book every like two to four years. I want the ideas to mature, you know, and then I'm going to, I'm really going to be doing my best to tell as many people as possible about soundtracks. Mm. That's a big part of the rest of my year is yeah. I really want to be brave enough to share that. I tell every author that like just the other day I ran into somebody who said, Oh, I love your books. You know, we, I was out and about and they're like, oh, we've got your books at home. They're like, when, when are you working on anything new? And I was like, yeah, I've got a book coming out in two weeks. And they're like, oh, I hadn't heard that. And so on my end, I'm like, <laughs> man, I'm like, people are exhausted of hearing me talk. And they're like, they're mm. like, never heard of it. So I tell anyone who has a business, a speaker, writer, author, whatever, you got to talk about it more than you think. And that's, mm. that's not a bad thing. Like, it's not easy for me to be promotional. It's not easy for most people to be promotional. But if you created something you believe in, not telling people about it isn't humility. It's cowardice. And you've got you to work through that. I learned that in radio a long time ago. Uh, about eight weeks in, you're really tired of hearing that new song. <laughs> but your, your listeners aren't even aware it exists yet. So. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So that's a, that's a great point. That's a great point. Well, the book, again, is called Soundtracks, The Surprising Solution to Overthinking. It's a fantastic book. I loved it, and I think you will, too. John, thank you so much for coming back on uh, the Read to Lead podcast yet again, always saying yes. I so appreciate that. Oh, yeah. Well, thanks for having me again. And if people are like, I want to I wanna try it out before I buy it, go to SoundtracksBook.com. Mm. You can read the first chapter for free. I'm a big believer in like, yeah, it's you might not be in a bookstore, you know, like where you live, bookstores might be closed or not available. So if you're like, hey, you know what? I'd love to see the first chapter first. Soundtracksbook.com. By now, you know exactly what you need to do if you want to dig further into this episode. It's go to my website to that page created especially for this episode. And that's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 365 for episode 365. You know, I admire some of these podcasters who publish daily episodes. I don't know how they do it, especially in light of the fact that as a podcaster now for almost eight years, it's taken me that long to publish a year's worth of episodes. As long as you keep enjoying them, I'll keep releasing them. And when you check out John's book, will you consider mine as well? It's called Read to Lead, the simple habit that expands your influence and boosts your career. In fact, John wrote a blurb for the book, which we very much appreciate. To find out more about my book, readtoleadpodcast.com slash book. In the coming weeks, we welcome the founder of the Better Book Club, Arnie Malham. And next week, it's Megan Hyatt Miller, CEO of Michael Hyatt and Company. That does it for this time. Look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read.